2: Rachel Zoe here and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that will be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Art of the Hustle is a production of iHeartRadio. You're listening to The Art of the Hustle, the show that breaks down how some of the world's most fascinating people have hustled and learned their way into achieving great things. I'm your host, Jeff Rosenthal, co-founder of Summit. And today on the show, I had the pleasure of chatting with Jessica Yellen. Jessica is the founder of News Not Noise, a fresh voice in media that provides daily news reports on Instagram. You can find the account at Jessica Yellen. She's a former chief White House correspondent for CNN, an Emmy and Gracie award-winning political journalist reporting for CNN, ABC News, and MSNBC. She has covered Capitol Hill, domestic politics, state and national elections, the culture wars, and issues facing women in the workplace. Her work has been published in The New York Times, The Daily Beast, Entertainment Weekly, The LA Times, and The Atlantic. A Harvard University graduate, Jessica released her first novel, Savage News, about reporting while female, in 2019. On News Not Noise, she does the news via Instagram daily to an audience that includes Jennifer Aniston, Kerry Washington, Selena Gomez, Orlando Bloom, and Amy Schumer, nourishes, teachers, politicians, and more. Jessica provides information that helps people understand the issues and talk about them knowledgeably. The idea, she offers information, not a panic attack. Jessica joins us to talk about how modern news sources compete for our anxiety, finding her voice, and the challenge of combating disinformation on the very social media platforms that espouse it. Please enjoy my conversation with Jessica Yellen. Jessica, thank you for joining us.
4: Thank you for having me. This is a treat.
3: I hear uh, we're we're across the city in Los Angeles today.
4: Yes, and we're told we can never leave our house again.
3: That's right. That's right. How how is uh, the pandemic treating you right now?
4: How are you doing? I'm okay at this moment. It's actually been, you know, I'm one of those people who's been surprised by how much I'm enjoying the solitude. Sure. Well, I've been a huge
3: fan of yours for a long time. I love news, not noise. Thank you. And you know for the for the courtesy of the listeners who aren't as familiar with it, do you mind giving us the 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 50,000 foot as we get into it?
4: Sure. I was a political reporter in Washington for a long time. I was the chief White House correspondent at CNN during the Obama presidency and I always had this feeling that we were missing a large part of the audience that there were people who wanted what we knew but they needed it told differently. And fast forward, I tried explaining this to a quadrillion people who didn't resonate, didn't resonate. So I realized over time, I just had to try this on my own and prove that there's an audience. And I do the news on Instagram to um, an audience that's uh, over 400,000 people. And the idea is I give you, I say it's information, not a panic attack. I tell you what matters, why, what crazy, frothy news is out there that you can ignore. And the whole mission is to say the information in a way that anybody can understand it and get interested enough to keep following the story, feel empowered by the knowledge, and ultimately take action. And
3: I love that. And that philosophy of, you know, how we do the news. And and it's certainly gotten more and more partisan, more and more anxiety driven. And I imagine that that's due to how it affects the bottom line. And I know that you have a counter-narrative to that, correct?
4: Yeah. I see the news as it's another industry that is ripe for disruption. And that might sound cliche, but it's true. It's, any, it's one of those businesses where there is a single conventional viewpoint, which is the way we get eyeballs, the way we drive ratings, the way we grow revenue is through telling stories that are high in conflict and that everything has to be framed um, as sports, competition, war, um, that's highly negative, anxiety inducing. It triggers your fear and panic. And that's not not because the news is necessarily has to be presented that way. It's that we choose to frame things that way. Mm -hmm. And it's one way for sure to get people to pay attention, but it's not the only way. And I actually think that, you know, we need other alternatives because that can be destructive.
3: Totally. And and what was, I mean, it's just such an incredible thing. Like not many people who are, you know, the senior White House correspondents for the leading news organizations in the world go on such an entrepreneurial journey and take such a huge jump like you did. Was there like, were you thinking about this for a long time? Did you have advisors that told you that this was a horrible idea? Like, take us back to the genesis of starting this.
4: I mean, I literally almost no one said do it. I I had a few girlfriends and a few people, but it started when I was still a correspondent and I was covering political campaigns in the White House. And that means in the in every election cycle, I'm on the road and I'm spending all my time talking to undecided voters because at the Uh end of an election, that's who makes the difference. Right. And overwhelmingly, they were women. And the conventional wisdom in Washington was like, ugh, they just don't care about politics. And, you can, and that's why they can't make up their minds because they're not paying attention. And there's all sorts of data you can find to bolster this. Like, when women pick up the newspaper, they tend to read human interest stories rather than politics and international relations stories. And so you could find all this evidence to confirm that these women just don't care. But I was out there talking to them, and they care so much. They mm-hmm. just wanted to know what's that person's policy? How's it going to affect my bottom line? What does that word mean you guys keep talking about? And why is everybody screaming? I can't listen with the screaming. And I'd go home and say, hey, can I try it differently? Like, I want to explain the policy. I want to tell them what matters. I want to investigate big stories. And everyone's like, yelling, don't be difficult. (laughs) Just do the news, like do the news the way we do it. And I just had this persistent feeling like we're doing a disservice to these people who want to know and we're not giving it to them. And then like the fast forward of it is there's all sorts of scientific studies and social science that proves when you frame things with negativity and appealing to people's outrage, it shuts down learning in the brain for some people, especially women But it shuts down learning, and it also promotes feelings of fear and alienation, which I think promotes polarization and all these things. Anyway, so I had all this instinct, which I'm saying the science actually shows there's a there there. And I wanted to do it differently, and I just couldn't do it inside the system. I just Mm -hmm. couldn't. So I had to find another way.
3: Well, and I totally appreciate that perspective. You know, I think about it from my own, you know, personal experience. When you're in fight or flight, it's pretty impossible to be creative. It's hard to like, you know, think about things under a new prism or really be rational, when you're being prodded to, you know, have an emotional reaction to whatever is being provided for you. And, and, you know, I think that the reason that the media is the one industry that is truly protected by Congress is because it was supposed to be a a form of public service.
4: A thousand percent. Oh my God. I love you because this is what my team laughs at me because I always, there's this JFK Jr. Quote where he says, there's a reason The free press is the only private business explicitly protected by the U.S. Constitution. Mm -hmm. And that's because we exist to ensure that we have an informed electorate in a democracy. And if we're not making you informed, we're failing. And, you know, you'll look at surveys. More than half of the people you survey in this country say that they feel less informed after watching TV news because they have questions and they're more confused. So like, how do you reinvent that? And how do you do it in a way? Because you still have to appeal to emotion to get people to engage, right? It can't be boring. It's just that anxiety, like, I think the news deliberately competes for your anxiety. And I think we can compete for other, like, stimulation centers in the brain.
3: Well, it's kind of incredible when you look at, and I mean, your your coverage um, of the election and of the pandemic, I know it reached nearly 70 million people in October, which is tremendous. And, you know, it's really interesting to see this split for the first time in a long time between people voting for a political party for their representative or their senator and not for president. And I know that that's one of the things that our president right now is saying is impossible because he's the lead dog. But it does speak towards what you're talking about, where people are informing themselves to a greater degree. It's not just like, well, I'm on the red team or I'm on the blue team and this is what we believe and, you know, whatever the party line is, is what we'll do. It's, it's a moment where it does seem like we all are sort of recognizing the necessity for us to participate more to, to create the country and the democracy and the place that we actually want to live in.
4: A thousand percent. One of the silver linings of the last four years is that I think people have started to pay attention to and care about government and they're asking questions. I mean, the people ask, what is, why do we have a pardon? Why is that allowed? That seems undemocratic. And, you know, just a blanket, immune, like people, you know, they know this exists, but they don't know enough about it. And so it's fostered this curiosity that I think will, endure. Like, I think once you're awake, you don't you might like need a respite. But I don't think that sort of interest in learning is going to stop.
3: And did you always want to be in the news? Is this something that has always been like, were you in high school, you know, doing local reports, you know, here in L.A.? What was the genesis of you being interested in this field?
4: It's so funny. I did not want to be a reporter. I wanted to I either wanted to be an essayist or a politician. I thought that reporters were, you know, critics who never did and only criticized and all those things. But my first job out of college was as an intern in the Clinton White House Uh Then I was on staff. And I was really, you know, as young and I didn't know. And I I was frustrated by how politics worked. I was too idealistic. And I really thought that the journalists were sort of the ones who were holding people's feet to the fire and the ones who had, like, the cool, interesting jobs and seemed to be really funny and fun. And I just thought, like, I'd rather be hanging out with those people. Sure. So I was an intern in the Clinton White House, and at the time, every room had one TV, those big tube TVs, right, that were Mm -hmm. huge. And it hung in the corner of every room. And there were always two things that could stop a room cold in the West Wing. One was the president himself walking into your office. And the other was that TV that was always tuned to the only 24 hour cable channel that existed, CNN, reporting on the White House. And those people on that TV could get the attention of everyone in the building. And they had so much power and influence. And I was always amazed that they were even then covering Clinton's haircut or somebody stole a helicopter to go golfing. And, you know, we're working on the crime bill and we're working on welfare reform and they're still chasing the scandals. And I thought, if I can get inside that TV doing that, I'm going to talk about the other things.
3: Totally. And uh, I, I haven't read Savage News. I bought it um, this Yay. morning, but I'm very excited to. And it reminds me of this Hunter S. Thompson quote that I love where he's talking about the music business. He says, The music business is a cruel and shallow money trench, a long plastic hallway where thieves and pimps run free and good men die like dogs. And there's also a negative side. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny. And and I remember I, I worked in Congress. I worked for the Rules Committee, um, and I think we overlapped uh, at your at the end of your tenure, um, you know, two thousand seven ish. And uh, I had you know you had this reaction to what you were exposed to. You were like, you know what, like influence is everything, right? Like how how are these decisions getting made, yes. and what are the factors that are leading to you know these people making the decisions they're making? Your experience was that the media was having that huge influence. Mine was really that you know whoever the biggest donor. was, was to the congressman that I was looking at often, mm-hmm. you know, is and, and the party line. Like I, I ended up there by a time where you know, like 95, 98 percent of Democrats or Republicans would just vote party line, or a whip would come and like crush your soul. I think Tom <laughs> Tom Delay was the majority uh, leader at the time and uh, dropped his God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve line on yeah. the House floor when I worked there. Um, and so I'm just curious, like you, you know, you you ultimately became an entrepreneur. Um, and started your own platform. But did you think about that too? I mean, I imagine you also saw the influence of business on politics at that time.
4: I mean, I had this notion that when you're an entrepreneur, you live in a world of, yes, let's try it. And my frustration in Washington especially was you'd always start with a no. Oh, that can't be done. That's too hard. That won't get support. You can't change. Before you ever – and then you have to persuade people into having the possibilities conversation. Um, So I liked that part of entrepreneurship. It appealed to me. And I always found myself stimulated by those conversations with people who were entrepreneurial. My dad was an entrepreneur.
3: Your dad was a legend in this city.
4: Oh, that's so nice. That's lovely. I mean,
3: it's true. I, I, you know, as a developer out in Utah with Powder Mountain, I know all about your dad and Grand Central Market and downtown LA and oh yeah.
4: Oh, that's awesome. Uh, yeah. And he, you know, I always think one of the challenges with my dad and we don't, but he started to develop, redevelop the urban core of LA before, like 30 years before it came back. Mm -hmm. And he always said, I'm a little too early. And, And he knew it. Yeah. And so I always wonder, like, do I have that? Is it too early? Is it too soon? But I guess we all have those things in our head. And just the fact that it's getting an audience and that people respond encourages me that it's not too early. We need this. It works. But, you know, you always have those fears.
3: Sure. And, like, how did you break past that? Because I imagine that, you know, you worked in – when you work in the white house when you work in a place like cnn you have a boss and that boss has a boss and there's a hierarchical there, there's a hierarchy of of the decision tree and i imagine that people want you to you know do what you're told more than like you know come up with your own ideas and execute them was there something that happened in your life that allowed you to kind of like drop the fear and go for it
4: there were a bunch of things and i was super methodical about it and i was very considered and i like while i was still there i went to you know, a career coach, a life coach, a, like talk to everybody, like just played everything out, tried every single thing, every way I could think of to see if I could do this inside the system. Like, don't blow things up without knowing. Don't. And at some point, it just, you know, there, there's this story about how somebody... Uh, was t- God told them that, don't worry, I'm going to save you. you have a- you're have, you going to be saved once. And mm-hmm. like he's drowning in the ocean and a, a, dis- you know, a cruise ship comes by to save him. And he says, no, thanks. And a helicopter comes by and says, no, thanks. And someone else. And he's like, God's going to save me. And then he dies and he goes up there. And God's like, I sent you a helicopter. I sent you a cruise ship. Like, notice the things. And I kept thinking, like, there are all these signs telling me that like my mission and my calling is this thing that I feel like I need to do and I cannot do it in the space I'm in. And I didn't know how I'd make it happen. I just knew that this wasn't going to happen here. And I don't, even though I've been critical of the institutions of the news organizations, I don't actually mean that as a criticism of the people where i worked you know i think that there's remarkable journalism going on right now Mm. in all those organizations but i also wanted this the, the world needs other voices and and sort of framing for for this audience and i just realized i wasn't gonna be able to do it where i was i had to find another way
3: we'll be back with more art of the hustle after the break
1: And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to math and magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. From the trenches, we share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people, and we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Oh, hi. Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come along with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the the behind-the-scenes details and, of course, drama. I'll be joined by some very special guests that'll be helping me break it all down. From award season nightmares to fashion week insanity, you'll get the real stories behind some of the most iconic moments in the show. The Rachel Zoe Project definitely changed my life and career in so many ways. The show definitely captured some of the most amazing moments, but also some of the absolute worst. I made the show for all the fashion lovers out there, and I'm so happy that people still watch it and love it so much. So do not miss this special takeover on Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. I cannot believe I just said that. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Did you have your voice? Like, I, I wish I knew the provenance a little better of of News Not Noise. But like from when you started it, was it clunky or was it like immediately there was an audience that resonated with it?
4: Oh, my God, for sure not. It was clunky beyond. Like, I was like a newscaster at the beginning. And hmm. I even, you know, until very recently, I scripted everything I did on camera. And now I just talk live. Um, I had a boss at CNN who said to me really early I want you to be a columnist. I want you to just come on and t- like give us a point of view on what's happening. And I I wouldn't do it. He and he's reminded me of it since he's like you said it couldn't be done back then. So, you know, you get I don't know if it's false consciousness or you get built into like I have to do these things to succeed. If I try something different, I you know, you you internalize values the place where you're working. But Ultimately, it's kind of what I'm doing now, which is I give you a point of view and a distillation of what I actually matters and why. And so I ended up in that place. But to answer your question more directly, I was a disaster. Like people started saying to me, you should do this around the time of the first women's march when Trump was just elected. Mm-hmm. And I didn't start it until 2018. So it took two years. Yeah. And I had a ton of friends saying, just put your face on camera and start talking. And I'm like, what am I going to talk about? And the first time I did it was like a holy disaster. It was comical. I struggled for a long time with, you know, why should I be, you know, why are people going to listen to me? What It was this internal conflict. Uh-huh. Um, and my friends are like, you know so much. Just ex- like, you know, just explain this thing you just told me. And um, it was really hard for me. And the best part, the thing that made it easier is I have really, really high engagement from the audience. So from the beginning, even when I only had like 3,000 followers, there was extreme engagement. So people were immediately DMing me and asking me to explain what did that word mean and what can Congress do and why is this happening? And I found that so stimulating after all these years of being on camera talking to like a lens, and having no idea if you're connecting or not, it's really exciting to have feedback like that, which you can only get in a different medium.
3: Wow, I never thought about that. And do you you think that we're going to see more of the you know, senior journalists and personalities that we're used to on, you know, our television screens moving to new mediums like Instagram or TikTok or Snapchat. Do you think that I'm sure they you you get phone calls and you know people are asking you about that path.
4: I mean that's part of what I'd like to build and create a framework for people to be able to more people to do what I'm doing, you know, as experts and knowledgeable voices. They are not calling them info insers. Mm -hmm. So I do think that in the future we will be following – we'll be more inclined to follow people we trust rather than brands. So sure. it's not the news institution. It's this person. It's still very hard for people to do what I did because, you know, there's a weird tension. Like if, as a reporter, you take huge risks in your work, like you go out to crazy places and you dig through things and you like take a flyer and invest a ton of time on a story that might go nowhere or you cold call, but we're super risk averse in our lifestyles. So you want the 401k, you want the health insurance. Like one of the things you hear in a newsroom is like, well, I got to do this. I couldn't ever do anything else. I'll never get another job, which is so untrue, right? But it's just a kind of mindset that's instilled. And so I think it's hard for people to make this leap. But I think as more frameworks are set up to reduce the friction, or maybe have like economies of scale where more journalists can join, it'll be a different story.
3: And, And I hear you on the risk profile of the stories that you choose. And, you know, being a public figure is not a piece of cake. But when I think about having the flag of a news organization, it's a lot less accountability than a personal relationship with the person that is, you know, following you on Instagram, for instance, right? Like I I would imagine that you have a greater sense of responsibility now that, you know, it's your name on the masthead. Do you feel like there's a difference where that's concerned?
4: That's so interesting. I, um, I felt a weirder tension before because... I was there as a representative of this institution that was much more than me, and it stood for certain things. And I often felt like I had to be it rather than myself. And so, like, there were things that if I were in the White House press briefing room asking questions as Jessica— I would ask differently, but because I was there as a representative of one of the news orgs I worked for, I had to frame it a certain way. I had to present. I had to do these certain things that are conventional. One of the things about my job now is it's awesome because I get to decide the story every day. It's up to me. And it's awful because I have to decide the story every day. (laughs) It's up to me. Yeah, And it's this tension, right? So I do miss, you know, first of all, when you call up and you're from... X and such, Mega News Org, your call gets responded to in a different way, but you also have like the burden of all of that, and and here I can just be more me.
3: Sure. Like so, for instance, how when you interviewed Dr. Fauci, for instance, like what is different about the way that you conducted that interview on News Not Noise than it would have been with say a CNN?
4: It's much less sort of what's going to make news. You know, when you're in these organizations, you what? How what, how do I frame a question to get them to make news? I see. And so you lead with whatever is like percolating in the story in the news today, and you ask for like them to say something that's you think fr- you frame it in a way they have to say something buzzy or sexy or combative or like announce an incremental development, whereas. As me now, I can say, okay, the audience is obsessed with the following thing. They don't understand it. Will you back up and explain it? And in the course of unfolding that conversation, you end up with discoveries and news developments and the rest, but it's more of a sort of organic experience. You're not front-loading. What did your friend say to you? Like You don't have to score points.
3: Yeah, well, it's so funny hearing you break that down. It's—I I hate to use language, but it's a little manipulative, right? Like for the interviewee and for the audience, because you're finding incremental news, and you know, f- and you're sort of subtly coaching the interview to create news versus to educate the the listener.
4: But that is how it's done. I, after this conversation, go back and watch TV news interviews and how they're done, and mm-hmm. it is like. Whatever's breaking that day, like react to it, respond. You said this thing. What did you mean? Because this other person criticized you for it. Can you advance that? It's these incremental, I call it firebomb reporting where there's like, oh, there's a fire over there. Oh, there's a fire. Oh, oh. And your eyes going here and there and here and there. But you don't have any sense of the big picture and you don't yeah. feel like and that leaves you anxious, fearful, not understanding, sometimes less informed, feeling confused, And that's what I'm trying to reverse engineer or uh, correct for.
3: To your point on traveling the country and talking to undecided voters, where do you think we go in 2020? Do you think that we're going to continue to see this increasing exponential polarization? Or do you think that, you know, America is ready to start setting aside some of its differences and looking for those moments where we can, you know, compromise?
4: I think that we're in for more tension right now. I I know the Biden administration will want to do what they can to create, you know, healing and civility. And I'm super engaged right now by this concept of like, what does reconciliation look like and how do you pair that with justice? And I think that's going to be a big tension going forward. How much justice, how much, you know, reconciliation. Sadly, I think we are in a period of extreme political polarization that, or political, I should say volatility. And I think that we in the media harp on the polarization and then amplify and accelerate the polarization in the way we tell the news, right? Always pairing an extreme person on this side with an extreme person on that side and having them fight rather than ever showing you where the area of consensus is. And so we're accelerating that. But we are living in an era of change. And as you're going through change, some people are really leaning into it hard and some people are really resisting it hard and as we grind our way through this awkward phase it's going to be rocky add to that disinformation and how social media is irresponsible and all the other things and it's going to be a bumpy ride for a while i think
3: sure and there's there's like fascism on both sides of the political spectrum right there's a liberal and a conservative Dogma, in a sense, that is very difficult to take any positions that are not defined as like core to the party line, whether it's, say, you know, gay marriage historically on the right or, you know, not supporting defund police on the left, right? So perhaps we're going to continue to see this stress between the camps. Do you think that we're going to see that continue to accelerate inside of our in groups? Or do you think that we'll be able to find some common ground where that's concerned?
4: Well, I do think that on the right, they contended with this earlier than the left, where the Tea Party, you know, rose and sort of took over the Republican Party, at least the institutional Republican Party, and has moved it right. And now a similar tension is happening in the left. I think it's an interesting conversation we're having right now. Barack Obama, you know, has said that defund the police is language that isn't constructive to, you know, policy progress. And that activists should try to come up with more constructive language, right? And then the activists are saying, basically, if we weren't out here on the left, you wouldn't have a place to compromise from. It's true. Let us use our language. We don't have to, you know, adopt centrist language from the start. We're going to be who we are right now. And so I do think that the left, the, the the left of the left, the progressive flank of the left, hasn't had the power and the oxygen to date that, you know, you sort of, need to balance out how far the right has moved. And it almost creates a more balanced sort of polarity to allow us to find a center over time. But it means it's really going to be, you know, there'll be some challenging fights.
3: Sure, I I learned so much from uh, the the William F. Buckley Gore Vidal debates from mm. the sixties, mm-hmm. and you know YouTube's so incredible because like you can find these like unbelievable debates that these guys would host. And Buckley had the the conversation with James Baldwin, and there's you know others that you know you can still see these these people that vehemently disagree with one another in terms of their perspective, but because they kind of agree to common facts and reason. And and rationality, there, there is an amazing learning, um, on, on both perspectives. I'm curious for you, like, is that something that you've ever considered bringing to news, not noise? Or is that, is that a format that you appreciate? Or do you think that in 2020, it's, it's going to be more of the talking heads screaming at one another?
4: Well, I know I'm against talking heads screaming at one another. I like the model of frontline from the BBC in England, where instead of setting everything up as combat and debate, Uh To allow in-depth conversation in a direction that allows you to see the—find areas where you can agree, tease out what is challenging. I think that this debate format that we've locked into has wrongly settled in people's minds as what politics always has to be in the U.S., two people arguing right and left. Yeah. And there's a multiplicity of views. We need to get into the nooks and crannies more. And so I really I would love to see something that actually starts with consensus. If you're doing a debate, like, where do we agree? And then let's talk about where we disagree or something like that. I do think that, you know, you commented that both sides have fascism. I think that right now um, the fascism on the right is fascism. Like Michael Flynn wants martial law to suspend the election. The fascism on the left is language fascism. Like, use our language, not yours. I don't think they're comparable and i think You're we right. have to account for that i mean mitch mcconnell is saying he won't negotiate off his position to like create an economic relief package when democrats have more than halved their position so we're not operating in universes where both sides are equally po- like equally extreme
3: art of the hustle will be right back after this short break
1: And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to math and magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. From the trenches, we share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Oh, hi, Rachel Zoe here. And we're going back to the Rachel Zoe project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come along with me as I take you back to season 1 to give you all the behind the scenes details and of course drama. I'll be joined by some very special guests that'll be helping me break it all down. From award season nightmares to fashion week insanity, you'll get the real stories behind some of the most iconic moments in the show. The Rachel Zoe project definitely changed my life and career in so many ways. The show definitely captured some of the most amazing moments but also some of the absolute worst. I made the show for all the fashion lovers out there, and I'm so happy that people still watch it and love it so much. So do not miss this special takeover on Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. I cannot believe I just said that. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts.
3: It's just such an amazing time for you to be doing what you're doing, right? Like it's this, this, these new platforms like Instagram. And I, I think about how compromise, like you're talking about where we agree, compromise is now this like dirty word. Whereas in, you know, society, when I think about it, it seems like the highest form of humanity, right? Like we disagree with yes. one another, and yet we can come to a conclusion that's mutually acceptable so we can move on and continue to grow. Do you think that part of that is the platform? Like it sounds like it's it's hugely important to what you're doing. The fact that you have you know such a direct relationship with the people who are consuming your news—that
4: is the best part of what I'm doing right now—is just how when I interview somebody, I put up I'm interviewing so and so about such and such. What are your questions? And so I save a certain amount of the interview to ask the audience's questions every time, and sometimes they come up with better questions than I would have, you know, it's just, they're so clear. So I love that. And I love the fact that when I started on Instagram, there was no one doing news on Instagram and it was much more civil and calm than the other possible social platforms I could be on. It wasn't, didn't have that fake news taint that, that some sure. the others did. It's been a great place. Like Amy Schumer announced her pregnancy on my Instagram feed early on, and that made it explode. And then I got all these celebrities to follow. So that's made it. So it's fun for those reasons. The, you know, challenge now is my audience is aware of the algorithm issues and some of them really want to get away from social media. And that's an internal tension I deal with. Like I'm trying to report on disinformation and the social media companies while I'm on a social media platform that's engaged in this stuff, right? Yeah, so I do, you know, like, what are the alternative ways to reach an audience? That's something I'm thinking about now.
3: Like newsletters or what other kind of stuff are you thinking of?
4: I mean, newsletters, podcasts. My big question, is there a way to do video to reach an audience through video that's in visual? That's not there isn't like a sub stack for video yet. You know, there isn't like a podcast network for doing what I'm doing. That's true. For sure. I could go out and build it, but I really want to do the news. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, what totally. I
3: mean? Totally. A dilemma. I'm curious. So you're talking about platforming the platform, right? Like, you know, you have an audience that that is cognizant of that being something that they might want to get less of. You know, I think about the New Yorker festival last year and all the backlash they got. Was it last year? I don't know, time's all blending together, but um when they were gonna have Steve Bannon talk. And, you know, they of course removed him and, you know, Malcolm Gladwell said, I thought this was, you know, an ideas festival, a conversation where everybody agrees with one another as a dinner party. And I'm curious from your perspective, do you, where do you, where do you net out on that with platforming people whose ideas you disagree with, or that can be, you know, destructive However, I imagine you also want to, you know, have this really rounded debate because it's news, not noise. To your point, you're not trying to just like take one side or be rhetorical. You're looking to, you know, unearth what's happening.
4: It's an interesting dilemma. It's such a good question. And it's a dilemma because I want, like for me, I'm committed to information and facts. And so it is... value to provide information and facts from across the spectrum, but not from people who are providing non-facts, who are like spreading disinformation. I don't think it's constructive to offer a platform in my space to that person. They can go out and have their own channel and they do and there are tons of them and that's cool, but I don't want to be propagating in any way this stuff. And so, I'll represent that this is out there. Like yesterday, I posted something from Newsmax talking about how, you know, Georgia Republicans think that they shouldn't vote because President Trump says the voting systems are broken and rigged. So I posted from Newsmax and I said, this is not a reliable news source. This is not a news source. But I want you to know what is getting out to part of our country or to part of this democracy. And for me, it's about context and framing. And so you can share information in a frame and then people can say, well, who are you to decide what is truth and facts? And I'm me. This is the job I do. And if you don't believe in my filter, you don't have to follow me. That's kind of where I am in our environment right now. You have to hold firm because otherwise you're in this universe of relativism and the people spreading disinformation aren't playing that game. They're just getting it out there.
3: Totally. That's a really, really great uh, way to look at it. And I, and I, I totally appreciate that. And it, it's to your point, I read today that more than half of Republicans now believe that the election was rigged.
4: I know. And it, the crazy, you know, backlash of it is maybe Republicans aren't going to vote in their own runoff election in Georgia because of it. Yeah, That's what we really have to address. I think the disinformation problem really is a huge problem going forward that we have to find some solutions for. And this is another, but it's not just tech. You need trusted voices. You need people, credible people that, you know, are sort of tent poles. Otherwise, we're in no man's land. Well,
3: that's kind of my point about, you know, and it's funny hearing your perspective, because you're like, when I was, you know, wearing a CNN hat, I felt you know, sort of additional pressure to walk the CNN party line. Whereas in my head, you know, I feel like you you live and die by your reputation now. And if you were to do something that was antithetical or like out of character, uh, to, to the, to, to your public persona, you would lose all of your credibility. So to your point, like, I love the quote, you know, it takes a lifetime. Like we, we build credibility in drops and we lose it in buckets, yeah. you know?
4: Yes. One of the things that I think I've managed to do it with my audience is to, I, I do, I'm human in the way I tell things and I, I don't reveal things about myself. Like I don't talk about what I wear or my beauty products, but I will say like, this was a hard story for me to report for the following reasons. So I let people in on the process a little or like how I got to this conclusion. And because of that, and because I, I think I have some leeway to say a little bit like, hey, I thought something a few months ago was this way, but actually having learned more, I see it differently or I think it's different or I was wrong and they'll come with me. And that is part of like the joy of having the style of communication. But sure, if I were to do something, yeah, I could get canceled like anybody could get canceled at any time these days. But I think I, I haven't because I do try to be upfront with the audience about like I don't know all the things. Here's what I do know and what I can deduce from it. Can I say one other thing, which is you Please. mentioned the party line? And I just want to say, because I get this question all the time, inside these news organizations, I have never once experienced anything close to a political agenda or any network executive wanting to promote a candidate or specific policy. When I talk about The confining qualities that I sometimes experienced, it was much more in terms of, like, framing and tone and how we approach stories and even what stories to tell, but not with a political, specific political agenda.
3: Yeah, well, I imagine most people that go into journalism do it out of a sense of public service, at least historically. And, you know, I feel the same way about, you know, people that serve in the military and frankly, police, like, you know, the vast, vast majority of police got into it out of a sense of service. So I imagine that in the same way that, you know, fake news and like journalists are, you know, now uh, persona non grata and so many narratives, I, I imagine it has like a double painful effect for those that have chosen that path because they did it in order to educate the public, not for some personal or political gain.
4: Totally. I really think, I mean, I'm going to sound so California right now, but you'll appreciate it. I, I do think that there's a lot of trauma, emotional trauma that's happened in the last few years. And yeah. being under attack like that is l- requires a level of vigilance every day, in addition to how hard your job is for reporters covering the White House. It's exhausting. And so, you know, people really need a break and some relief from this. And it does take a toll. And, you know, I know how stressed out my former colleagues are. And, you know, there were even fears of physical violence. Yeah, it's been an incredibly hard stretch. And I want to just say, like, it didn't just start now. I was at rallies, Sarah Palin rallies where they were doing the whole, you're the enemy of, you know, the press is the enemy. You're destroying America. Like this predated Trump, he just accelerated it.
3: Sure. Well, I mean, I'll say two things on that. One, Trump, if you recall, was on the WWF. Totally. and And it's a total WWF move where it's like, boom the media in the back of the room, good guy, bad guy, like that whole dynamic. And then, you know, through our mutual friend, Isaac Lee, I got exposed to the Committee to Protect Journalists, which works around the world and you know while we are talking about the trauma of being a journalist you know in the Trump era in the United States the mortal danger of journalists around the world i believe there are more dictatorships than democracies right now in 2020 globally and so you you have it it still is this incredibly high risk position that is informing the public and you know educating us on the malfeasance of our leadership which is inherently dangerous you know like i'm i'm frankly like I was pretty terrified of the Trump administration. I didn't want to, like, you know, put my name on a C four or something along those lines in this last cycle for fear of retribution, you know. And like, and and I I hate to say that, but like, that's just you know self preservation. So I, I I am not brave to the point that many of our journalists are who are willing to put themselves on the line to cover these things.
4: Yeah, I have so much respect for correspondents around the globe, especially in dictatorships. I interviewed Clar- Clarissa Ward recently, who goes in and out of Syria for CNN. And I mean, it's unbelievable what she does. But I think it's sort of, you know, when you do it, you can't not do it. Like, if that's your passion, it's just in you and you're called to it. You know, we need those people. And it's important that we have these groups like Committee to Protect Journalists. I mean, I had this crazy experience. You know, reporters in the public are never allowed in the Situation Room in the White House. And the Situation Room, it's hard to explain, but it's its actually a suite of offices that include multiple things that you think of as a Situation Room. But um, one, when I was covering the White House at one point, they renovated the Situation Room. And I got to go on a tour of it while a- after the renovation. And, you know, this is where they monitor world events and decide if we're going to war and have the mm-hmm. most— high, And there's this one, like, observation deck in the situation room where they have the the people who monitor what's happening around the globe 24-7 eyes on. And they're these massive TV monitors. And I was like, do you have like eyes from army rangers in Afghanistan on these things or battleship, you know, x-ray? I don't know, what are you guys watching? And they're like, CNN, the BBC, Sky News. We hear it from the press first. And so we're not just educating the public, it is eyes and ears for everyone in the world. Our government is relying on this now. And it's that's why it is so important and foundational to democracy and and our survival that we have a diverse press with a multiplicity of voices that that really connects with the audience and really, you know, can thrive and can help us thrive
3: beautifully said and you know you're I, I I can't agree more with the the name of the show news not noise and you're such a pioneer in the space to step out and do this and build this and you know with more and more noise we need better curation we need more sense making um you know we, we, the the level of group rational sense making <laughs> seems to be at a lifetime low for me you know, granted, I'm 36, so I haven't seen that much. But um, you know, I really greatly appreciate you know what you do and what you've done, and uh, I do hope that it inspires you know uh, dozens and hundreds and thousands of other journalists to start you know taking the medium into their own hands and communicating directly with the audience.
4: I'm so flattered by that, and we would be following in your footsteps because that is what you do. You generate dialogue, you bring people together, and that is what, what you've modeled. We need to do more of that in the public discourse and in in our media. So, thank you as well.
3: Well, thanks for being on the podcast, Jessica. I really appreciate it. And uh, w- and and in terms of you know finding more of Jessica's work, um, you know, news not noise is 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 on. Is it's just at news not noise, correct?
4: No, it's no. at. Yellen on Instagram I know it's confusing You have to my follow. apologies it's at Jessica Yellen Got I know it. I probably need a branding expert to come help solve that dilemma
3: or let's <laughs> just who has news that noise let's hit him up
4: uh I know I don't know how to do that
3: well we'll we'll, we'll catch up offline
4: okay <laughs> thanks
3: again for coming on the podcast the hour <laughs> of the hustle
4: thanks for having me
1: For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
0: If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeart Media. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math and Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards
2: Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that'll be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts.